Hello class. Welcome to True Crime University. This is your Professor Debbie. How's everybody today? I'm not kidding you. It's the middle of the afternoon and literally I sit my ass down in my recording seat and somebody starts cutting their grass with a lawnmower. So hopefully you won't hear it. Um, I just checked my stats, the who's listening, and I was really excited to see we have some people in Vietnam. Thank you so much and welcome. Finland, Germany, England, a number of states around the United States. And I can't believe people actually listen to me. It's like, wow. So today I have kind of a short one, well, relatively speaking, for you, because I, uh, I did let the cat out of the bag that I'm working on a big one. Um, I'm kind of conserving all my energy for that. And I will let you know that I'm going to try to air it to coincide with a, I don't know if it's a documentary or a miniseries or what it is that's coming out on this topic. And I've, I'm sneaky like that. I've been planning this for months. But that one is really fascinating. This one today... I literally have never heard of this dude, and if any of yins out there say that yins know who this is, I will legitimately be shocked. This is an obscure one. At first, I'm like, well, that's not too interesting, and then I, the more I read about it, I'm like, oh, that is interesting, and oh, I hope yins think so too, and um, there's actually a book about it. I'll tell yins a little bit about it later, and I did not have the book, or this will be a lot longer, but I got access to an excerpt from it, and it, it gave me a little bit of, of uh, meaty information to share. But because it's a little bit old, I'm lacking in pictures, so I'm sorry about that. Pictures of him, the killer, there's just aren't very many of, and unfortunately the victims, there's two victims. There's a couple nice pictures of, of the one victim, and the other victim, there's like one shitty one of, and I'm, I apologize for that because I hate not having good information about the victims, and this is one of those cases. But you know my usual, uh, what do you call it, a um, credo, maybe personal belief, that I don't talk about something unless I see something in the case that's like a good teaching point or something about psychology or something somehow valuable in it that we can learn from and there definitely is. Here's my usual disclaimer. All of the information I present is available to the public and any sound clips are from news or court which are also public. The purpose of this podcast is for information and education. I mean no disrespect to anybody especially victims or their families. I in no way intend to glorify criminals. And I talk about psychology, but I can't diagnose anybody. I have no credentials. So therefore, when I pretend to diagnose people, it's just speculation. The guy that we're going to talk about today, his name is Charles Eukel. And he went by the name Charlie. And if you look him up in Wikipedia, uh, I'm sorry, but this is hilarious. You know how it, it says, um, like, their name and what they are like you know, so-and-so actor or so-and-so politician. Next to his name, it literally says ragtime pianist and murderer. I mean, that is such a strange juxtaposition of titles. 
Okay, so Charles was born on February 14th, 1935 in Baltimore, Maryland. His parents were from what was then Czechoslovakia. He had a brother, Tex, that's his name, Tex, who was three years younger. He comes from a very musical family. His dad, also named Charles, was a trumpeter, and his mother, named Dorothea Freitag, was a conductor and a pianist. And it seems like, I don't know if it's a genetic thing or talent, I don't know, but everybody in the family was involved in music, and they, at least for Charles and his mom, that's how they made their living. And he could play the piano and sight-read music by the age of four. Okay, I'm back. It's about midnight. It's uh, nice and quiet around here. It's like my time. I talked to a friend of mine who knows a lot about music, which I don't. And I asked him what sight-reading music was. And he said it means you can look at sheet music and just play it without having seen it before or practiced it. And I I said, well, if somebody could do that at age four, that that means they're good, right? And he was like, wow, that means he's like a prodigy, like really, really good. So I think it was uh, the Japanese episode. We talked about helicopter parents and how the Japanese tend to push their kids into activities and academics and such. Well, apparently, Charlie had helicopter parents, or at least his mother was, and she was very hard on him, demanding. She made him play the piano, like, all the time, and if he played something perfect, she would be like, well, that's not good enough, do it again. Like, that kind of person. And he course, is going to eventually get resentful and feel like he's never good enough. His parents were said to be kind of cruel, and I don't know if it was his mom, dad, or both, but they were physically abusive. I don't know if, I don't know anything about his brother, Tex. If he was musical, if he got beat, I, I don't know anything about him. His mother was, like, hovering and hard on him and I hate to say this, but the typical serial killer mother that you read about. And his dad was, like, distant and remote. Like, not acted like he didn't love him or whatever. So, already, we have the perfect recipe for a murderer, right? Or at least somebody who's gonna turn out fucked up. So, when Charlie was seven, his parents got divorced. And he moved to Los Angeles with his dad and brother. At the age of nine, he uh, got a new hobby, and that would be arson. He supposedly set about eight or nine fires to get attention. And if you're keeping score at home, you know the McDonald triad, or also called the homicidal triad, that they say the characteristics of a serial killer are setting fires, bedwetting, and cruelty to animals. But in recent years, they've kind of backed away from that. Well, anyway, you can check that off on the checklist. He went to North Hollywood High School. I read somewhere that he graduated, but I read somewhere else that he dropped out at age 17. At some point, I don't know when, but he studied at the Peabody Conservatory, which is part of Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And 
if you know anything about Johns Hopkins, you know that that's like the top, top of the line for education. They have a music and dance program. And he did study there. I don't know when or for how long. He would join the Navy. And he was in there for two years. He was not a, um, a model sailor. He spent most of his time AWOL. He moved to New York City in 1956. He reunited with his mother. Not sure why. But his mother was still a bitch. And they still didn't get along. The only thing he was ever good at in school, this is a little bit funny, was typing. I guess because he played the piano and um, I'm sure that there, if you think about it, there is a connection. He worked his days as a typist and at nights he played the piano. He also worked as an accompanist and what that is, I had to look it up. It's somebody who plays an instrument while somebody else sings. Like, um, I know I'm really making myself sound old, but if anybody remembers the captain and Sunil, the captain was this dude, and he played the piano, and Tennille was his wife, and she would, like, lay across the piano and sing. Well, that's what this means. He taught singing and piano, and he was also a musical director. And his mother, not surprisingly, urged him to be a professional pianist. He specialized in ragtime music. If you don't know what that is, it's like an old time. It, it came from the South, you know, the, the uh, American South. It peaked between 1895 and 1919. And a, a guy named Scott Joplin is like the major composer of ragtime music. It's like the type of thing, if you heard it, you'd be like, oh, that. Yeah, I know what that is. But anyway, he was a really good ragtime piano player. He had the stage name of Yogi Freitag. And remember, Freitag was his mother's maiden name. And I'm sure Freud would have something to say about that. He played at a, a place in Manhattan called the Red Onion and at the Bandbox in Union City, New Jersey. And on weekends, he went to Bucks County, Pennsylvania. I have no idea why or what was there, but it is kind of close to New Jersey. It's on the, the eastern end of the state. And he would go play in um, the Catskills Mountains and up at Lake Georgia, New York. And those were both like resorts where rich people would go. So I could see where they would have a people that that um did entertaining. He liked photography and he took photography classes. And it was in photography class that he met a Danish girl named Enken and they got married in nineteen sixty one. Also, um kind of disturbingly, if if you have still have your scorecard and you're checking off red flags, put a check next to he was a volunteer auxiliary policeman. He did this for like nine to ten months. They didn't wear a uniform. They did traffic control and duties that were considered non-hazardous. But remember that a lot of killers are fascinated by police and they're like wannabe cops or they try out to be, you know, apply to the police force or they end up being security guards or some like a quasi law enforcement type of field. So this would definitely count 
as quasi-law enforcement. To nobody's surprise, he was not happily married. He was 26 when he married Enkin, and he was a virgin, which is kind of odd for a dude at that age. She would later say that they had sex less than once a year. That's not a whole lot, I don't think. On October 24th of 1966, he was 31, and he was, they, him and uh, his wife lived in an apartment in Manhattan, and he not only lived in the apartment building, but he was also the apartment manager. So one of his students, and this will be his, his first victim, was 25-year-old Suzanne Reynolds. And fortunately, I have a pretty detailed account of what exactly happened to Suzanne and I, I got, I told you there was a book about this case. I'll put the information in, in my show notes. And I, I found an excerpt from it, and this is where I got that from. Did you ever read, I'm uh, assuming that you probably read True Crime at some point, or you've read some nonfiction, and they kind of make it sound like a novel, like a narrative. You know, she thought, or he said, or blah, 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 just to make it, it flow easily. Well, this part of the book is describing Suzanne's murder, and it's like Suzanne thought this, and she thought that, and I'm like, wait, she's dead, so how do we know what she thought? And then, later I learned that he confessed, and he literally gave like a play-by-play description of everything that happened in this incident, so that's where we got all these details from. I'm not just making this up. This is this is from him, Okay. So, Suzanne Reynolds was from Florida, and she was one of those people who was, like, starstruck. She really wanted to get into show business. She wanted to be, like, a singer or actor or something. She was said to be a pretty redhead. She went to New York City because, like a lot of people did, they thought that they could get into some theater-related line of work. So, she worked as a secretary by day, and at night she took acting and voice lessons. And for three months, she had been taking voice lessons from 30-year-old dude named Charlie, who we know is our subject of today's lesson. He taught piano and voice. He was said to be well-mannered, like, um, remember his parents were immigrants. They were Czech, and whenever he greeted somebody or said, like, hello and goodbye, he would bow. So he, he was, like, small and um, thin and real, like, polite and neat and everything. So she gets to his apartment, which is on the third floor, and there's a note on the door, and it says, Hi, just went out to walk the dog. The door is open. I'll be right back, Charlie. So she goes in, and she sees the dog sitting in the living room. She's like, mm, okay. And he had a big-ass Great Dane. I don't know what his name was or anything. I, I always wonder, whenever I read about a dog, I'm like, well, you know, what's her name or what, what kind? Because I like dogs. But it seems like a strange dog to have in an, an apartment. But I've never had any. But I've heard that Great Danes are extremely lazy. So maybe he just, like, laid on the couch all the time or something. I don't know. So she heard something that sounded like a bath running. Somebody, you know, somebody's taking a bath. She sits on the couch and here comes Charlie out of the bathroom and he's naked and wet. And he looks at her and he goes, oh, and he acted like he was surprised. Notice I said acted. And he, he's like, 
I didn't realize you were here. I'm sorry. I'll be back in a minute. And she's like, pretty nonchalant. She's just like, all right, you know. So he came out dressed and he sat down in the chair and looked down and just looked like something was wrong with him. So Suzanne said to him, Charlie, are you okay? And she thought maybe he was embarrassed that she'd seen him naked. She said, do you want to forget about tonight? I could come back. He, oh, I forgot to mention that he stuttered, especially when he was nervous. So a lot of times when I read a quote from him, they put the uh, the stutter in and it sound, he sounds like Elmer Fudd from, um, what was that, Bugs Bunny, the cartoon. He, I don't, I don't know what he was. Was he a pig or maybe he was a human? I don't know, but he was a cartoon character and he stuttered. So... He said, no, 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 you, you, you can stay. And she said he, he was acting weird. And she could tell that he'd been drinking. She, she could smell it. And his wife wasn't home. So then he starts to like ramble and not make a whole lot of sense. And he comes out with this uh, quote, did you get excited at seeing me? And she just said, let's get to work, Charlie. So he's still sitting there mumbling, acting confused. Apparently this went on for a while. Are you okay? And he's like, did you bring the songs? And she said, sure, they're right here. I guess the songs that they were going to sing or whatever. So she looked in her purse and she dropped her purse. And everything that was in the purse went all over the floor. And she's like, oh, it's not here. I'm sorry, I forgot it. So all of a sudden, he's mad. And he, he stands up and uh, he said to her, you're a slob. You're a goddamn slob. And apparently she tried to leave and he grabbed her by the shoulders and pushed her against the piano, tore her shirt. And he said again, you're a slob. This is probably only taking like a minute. But while she's heading for the door, she's like, at, at some time she realized, oh shit, something wrong with this dude. I better get out of here. So she heads for the door. She made the mistake of turning around to get her coat. And that's when he got her. He, in the meantime, while she was going for the door, had reached in his closet and got a big black necktie. So he had the tie like twisted in his hands. Can you picture like ready to put around somebody's neck? So that's what he did. He came behind her and he put the tie around her neck. And it was a two minute struggle, but she eventually died. So he drags her in the bathroom and he sits her. He's tired. He's worn out because he just strangled somebody. He's sweating. He's breathing heavy. So he had some beer, I guess, to like calm himself down. And he found that he's excited. He's like, you know, erect. Um, and he notices he got some of her blood on his shoes. So he undressed her and dragged her into the living room. And he, he's like, oh shit, my wife's going to be home soon. So he gets a razor blade from the bathroom, puts it in his pocket, and, you know, now, I told you he's the manager of this building, so he's familiar with, you know, who lives where, what apartments are empty, and so forth. They're on the third floor, right? So he drags her naked body down the steps, and you can imagine this must have been pretty hard. He knew that on the second floor there was an empty apartment, so he put her in there, closed the door, and he got a flashlight. He undressed himself. Now, this is going to get kind of graphic. He fondled her, or her, her body. He um, orgasmed. This is kind of weird. After he orgasmed, he punched her in the face. And all the while he's doing this, like rubbing on her and everything, 
he kept repeating the phrase, goddamn slob. So this is kind of a bizarre picture. But it gets worse. He took his razor and he slashed her like everywhere. Like all her whole body. Just going nuts with the razor. So he got dressed and went back to his apartment at 7.30. He put her clothes in a paper bag and walked the big dog. He's got the clothes with him. He threw them away in a public garbage can. And him and his dog come back as his wife is getting home. So he makes a pretense of finding her body because he left the door open a little bit. So he told his wife, he's like, look what I found. You know, come see this. So he called the police and the police come. It's like 10 o'clock at night. And he told the police, um, I know who that is. She was in my apartment earlier for a lesson. And he said he was walking up to his apartment. He noticed that the door was open, went in and found her. So 1.30 in the morning, the police asked him and his wife to go to the station to give statements. And in the meantime, they're interviewing friends of hers and other people, neighbors and such. And he was interviewed by various detectives until like 6.30 in the morning. Now, at some point, and this would be a major point of contention later, the police noticed that he had... Now, he's not under arrest. He's not in custody at this point. They noticed that he had a stain on his pants. And the police said it looked like it, it was a white stain, like a maybe bleach or something like that. And they asked him what it was, and he said it was something, some kind of cleaning product or something. According to the police, he voluntarily said, here, here's my pants. Um, according to the court papers in his appeal, they asked him for his pants. So, not going to affect the outcome of this case, but it was made quite a deal of on appeal. So, then they notice, and this is going to get really gross, but there's no way to, uh, uh, what's our sugarcoat this. They notice that he has a brown stain on his underwear. And if you can see where this is going, they say, you know, can we see your underwear? So, he gives them his underwear. And they see that... He has poop on his um, member. And yeah, I, I don't think I should have to finish explaining that to you. I think that we're, um, this isn't true crime kindergarten. This is university. We're at that level where you should be able to fill in some of these blanks on your own. But I mean, just to go on a tangent. Okay, obviously he sodomized her after she was dead. So... He's not only a, a rapist and a murderer and a pig, he's also a necrophiliac now. Why he didn't wash his dick is totally, I, I mean, okay, he's all those other things, but that's like the most mind-blowing part of this whole thing to me is, oh God, I just, okay, uh, uh, that image is going to haunt me. All right, so, well, the police also are not that stupid. And they, they're like, oh, okay. They let him see his wife for a little bit. And apparently, they still have his shoes, pants, and underwear. So he's, like, pretty much naked, which means he can't really go anywhere. So eventually, they do Mirandize him. And when he talked to his wife, she told him 
gave him the advice, you know, come clean with the police. Tell tell them everything, whatever you did. So at this point, she's probably like, oh my God, I married a murderer and a, a necrophile and whatever else. So he eventually, bit by bit, and that's usually, usually when somebody confesses, that's um, how it comes out is a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more, and then like the, the more comfortable they become with somebody, especially if the person doing the interrogating is good and knows how to interrogate somebody. If you want to see a good example of a good interrogation, and there's this tape is like everywhere, watch the interview of Chris Watts. I'm sure you know who he is. Um, being interviewed by the FBI. There's an FBI agent and there's a CBI agent, which is Colorado. Bureau of Investigation. They spent hours talking to him. Um, it's on YouTube. There's like a whole bunch of them. That is probably the best example of a good interrogation that I've ever seen. They're real nice to him. They, you know, coax and cajole him and, you know, make a report, report which is what you're supposed to do. And eventually, you know, everything comes out. It takes some hours. It takes them a long time. But they eventually get there. And there's like actual whole classes and textbooks on interrogation techniques. But as somebody who, who used to do this, I know from personal experience, if you establish a rapport, you don't judge. Like you, you don't say something like, ooh, poopy dick, poopy dick. Or man, if, even if you're thinking that, or call them names, or you're an asshole, you're terrible. Whatever they've done, you have to ignore it and you have to be nice so that they'll talk. And not everybody can do it. I know it's it's not for everybody. But anyway, this goes on all night, right? So about noon, he sees the assistant district attorney. He signs a statement basically saying everything that I just told you. Here are the results of Suzanne's autopsy. She was found to have broken bones, hemorrhages, abrasions, contusions of her face and neck, multiple slash and incised wounds. Remember, he took the razor to her. Um, they noticed that she had been sodomized, and her cause of death was asphyxiation due to strangulation. So he's charged with first-degree murder, of course, not given bail. But in a plea deal, and this would become extremely controversial, he was allowed to plead guilty to first-degree manslaughter, and he was sentenced to seven and a half to 15 years. You heard me right. Seven and a half to 15 years for murder, rape, necrophilia, sodomy, and everybody is like, huh? So he serves his first two years at Sing Sing, you know, the notorious tough prison. Then he goes to Wallkill Correctional Facility in New York, which uh, the newspaper said was cushy. And at the time, it ha housed, quote, good behavior or white-collar inmates. So I guess you could say it, it was cushy compared to Sing Sing. But then I think probably any pl places compared to Sing Sing. But you get the point. Now it's a medium security prison. But while he was in prison... He was, he was a, quote, model inmate. He formed a prison band, took college classes, volunteered as a typist, and he did photography. Not real sure what he took pictures of. And they said he was very enthusiastic about attending therapy. 
He was released after six years and eight months. And that was, okay, June of 1973. He was paroled. And that was two whole years before his minimum. So everybody in like the community, oh, and this was against the recommendation of the state. The parole board thought that he was a good risk for parole. So the community gives out a collective what the fuck and well he's on parole and guess what he did 14 months later if you guessed kill somebody else you're right this victim was 23 year old karen schlegel and she was another one of these aspiring actors slash model you know whatever wanted to get into show business so she saw an ad in a magazine for um like people in the theater industry advertising auditions for a a role in an upcoming film directed by some dude named Charlie Yuckel. So I guess she went to his um audition or whatever you call it and he told her that she could use some um, I guess because she was new or, you know, hadn't acted much or whatever, that he offered to give her some after-hours tutoring, you know, like acting lessons at his apartment. And supposedly she discussed this with her friends, and they're like, Karen, that sounds fishy. He's never directed a movie before, and he wants you to go to his apartment after hours. Like, mm. So... We don't know if she felt any alarm bells or not, but he was said to be, at this time, he was 39. He was, like, short, soft-spoken, and he, he stuttered, and he does a thing with the, the bowing. He's all polite, and so this happened on August 19th of 1974. She goes to his apartment at a place called Waverly Place. This is in Greenwich Village, so she goes in the, the apartment, and she finds it filled with all kinds of like photography stuff like cameras and lights and backdrops and he's walking around like adjusting everything and she's standing there and he's looking at her through the lens of a camera and she notices that he's playing with himself and she's like what are you doing and he said do, do I turn you on oh my god really now I don't know the details here, but it's very similar to what happened to Suzanne. Two days later, her, her nude body was found on the roof of his building. How he got up, her up to the roof, I don't know, but she had also been strangled and mutilated with a knife, and there's a parole officer named Ben Lichtenstein. I don't know if it was his PO or just a PO, but he was watching the news, and he saw the story on the t TV news about the body on the roof, so he calls a cop friend of his, and he's like, um, you know that body on the rooftop of Waverly Place? And the cop's like, yeah, and the PO's like, that's where Charlie Yuko lives. So, <laughs> um, it didn't take long to solve that case. There was a very brief investigation and he was charged with her murder. And this time he got sentenced to 15 years to life. In court, he was asked by the judge why he killed her. 
and he said, quote, I, I, I had an urge to kill. Now, understandably, of course, there's some, um, the community is not pleased about this because he had literally just gotten out of prison for doing the exact same thing. So, of course, people started asking questions like, why did this happen? You know, who let this happen? Why was this allowed to happen? And the wardens of the prisons he had been in and, and the therapists and shrinks and such were kind of defensive. The warden of Wallkill named Harold Butler said, quote, I've seen thousands of inmates and if we're supposed to release anyone, he was the right guy. There wasn't a mark on his record. I trusted him so much that I probably would have left him alone with my wife or daughter, end quote. Then his psychiatrist, a guy named Dr. Emanuel Yor, he had over 20 sessions with him. He's quoted as saying, we were sure he was rehabilitated and one of the best, brightest, most articulate prisoners I have ever seen. He hated women who reminded him of his mother. He resented the pressure she put on him to succeed as a pianist. End quote. Now, I, I guessed at that earlier, that if you pressure your kid like that, they're going to resent you. Most people don't go out and kill people, but it, it's uh, never a good idea. So, he had everybody totally hoodwinked. And this was, okay, the 70s. I think we've learned, or should have learned, let me ask the class, can sex offenders be rehabilitated? Okay, that's what I thought. Everybody said no. Or, well, maybe I'm hearing things, but I thought I heard somebody say no. No, they cannot. As far as we know right now, sex offenders, whether it be pedophiles, rapists, um, sex offenders of any kind, uh, a lot of people have tried a lot of different things, programs and therapy and, and all kinds of stuff. And in general, nothing seems to work. So... These people, the uh, warden and the, the shrink and everybody, the parole board, they are probably pretty embarrassed of themselves. He is in Clinton Correctional Facility, which is in Upper New York, like in the Adirondacks, in a town called Danamora. On August 21st of 1982, he barricaded himself in his cell. And I don't, I don't know what his deal was, but a psychiatrist talked him out. So they sent him to the infirmary. And the next day they found him dead, hanging by a strip of cloth that he had torn from his mattress cover. Now, as far as psychology goes, I'm going to pretend to analyze him. And I bet I can do at least as good a job as the uh, shrink that he had in prison. Most likely, um, if let's just say he wouldn't have got caught, it's very likely that he would have kept killing. Um, there were indicators that he was roused by the killing. Remember, he um, got excited when he uh, first met the second victim, Karen. You know, he, he was fondling himself, and she's like, what are you doing? And we don't know any details of that offense, but the first offense with Suzanne, we know that it, it was very sexual. He was rubbing himself all over her, and he sodomized her, and after she died, which is kind of telling. So he, he was um, sexually excited by this, and we've learned that, or I hope we've learned, with these sexual killers, or they, I think they're also 
some people call them lust killers. At some point in their lives, they learn to associate violence with sex. And it's usually something that happens when they're real young. And for them, um, violence is the only way that they can get a sexual release or gratification. And remember, his wife said that they had only had sex like, you know, a few times over the, the, the short period of time that they were married. So that's significant. That's kind of suggests that he just can't get into it unless he's hurting somebody or killing somebody. And strangulation is a very sexual way of killing because it's hands-on. Even if he used the, uh, the tie, it's still considered like a, a sexual method. Now, um, we don't know if these murders were planned or if he just kind of did them on impulse. With the first one, Suzanne, um, I think he might have been playing on something because, remember, he put the note on the door. He's like, I'm out walking my dog, but the dog's sitting there. And then he's in the bathroom, and he comes out naked, and he pretends like, whoops. And then he's like, did you get excited when you saw me naked? And so that kind of seems to have been set up. Whether or not, like, if, if she would have gone along with it and said, oh, that's um, a nice body you've got there, Charlie, or something to that effect, would they have had, like, consensual sex? Mm, I kind of doubt it, just because of his pathology and his history. He apparently enjoyed exhibiting himself. Um, I saw somewhere that he did it to, you know, flashed himself to other students of his without killing them, but still you know, that he was into exhibitionism. I'm kind of tempted to say that these are disorganized killings. You know how profiling it's, they're either organized or, or disorganized. They were like half planned, maybe mixed, maybe they seem to be like half planned, but then half, half, half assed, if, if you know what I'm talking like, he didn't make too much of an effort to dispose of either victim. He just kind of put them somewhere. And I don't think he was, he may have been a musical genius, but when it comes to body disposal and killing, he wasn't very smart. He had to have known, you would think that in both of those instances that, you know, the, he's going to get caught. It doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to solve either one of those cases, especially the second one where you have a victim that's dead that's literally on the roof of a building in which a paroled sex offender killer lives. And I don't think he was a sociopath or a psychopath. I would definitely say that he had issues. And I know this sounds like a stereotype, but his mother being the way she was with demanding and, you know, we, we know that he was over probably over disciplined I guess is, is the word as a kid forced to be perfect I'm sure that made him and he even said to his psychiatrist in prison that he started to resent his mother which you know who wouldn't and I think he just started to take it out on all females and he obviously used his position as a, a teacher to take advantage of his students both of his Victims were also students who came to his apartment for some kind of lesson. But he probably had hundreds of other students, both male and female, that came for piano and voice lessons that he didn't bother. So 
you know, was it something about these two? Did he plan these two? Or did he just all of a sudden on the moment decide, you know, I want to kill this one or this one? We'll, we'll never know. Lessons we can learn. If you have kids, don't push them into doing things like playing the piano or whatever it is. Encourage them if they want to do it. Be supportive, but don't force them. Certainly don't beat them. Um, it's not a common childhood hobby to start fires if your kid does that. Get them help ASAP. A lot of people you hear about, especially New York City or Los Angeles, they're trying to get into like show business or, you know, acting, modeling, such and such. They may be preyed upon by shady characters like this one who, you know, the old joke about the cast and couch and apparently, I mean, that, that stuff does happen. So be careful, both men and women. Um, you know, if you're going somewhere, if you're, you're going to meet somebody, especially if they're a stranger, let a friend know I'm going to see such and such. This is their address. Um, it, it's a lot better nowadays that we have. Everybody has cell phones, but yeah, just let people know where you're going. Um, the book that I had the excerpt from is called The Piano Teacher by Robert Tannenbaum. I have no idea if it's any good or not. And newsflash, I started a Twitter account. It's at TC University. Capital T, capital C, capital U, N-I-V-E-R-S-I-T-Y in lowercase. I'll put it on my show notes. So, um, I think that's all. Nathan's out there snoring. I love when he snores. It's so cute. All right. I will see you back here next week.